Well, I admittedly have less to say about this film than the former, or probably the next one. I say probably, I'm not there yet, obviously. This was still a very enjoyable film to sit through. In fact, I'd say it's actually a little bit more enjoyable than the previous one in many ways. While it doesn't have the same overall feel of the slice-of-life thing, because this feels far more of the main story of Mortimer, through which Monko just kind of happens to be passing through, it's still a very enjoyable ROM. They do a lot of good things with most of its characters. The budget is definitely more on display here. While the first film felt like a cheap film and managed to succeed because of the strength of its actors and its cast and the director, uh, this one manages to succeed on the strength of its actors and its, and its background and its set design and its director, and also the fact that they clearly spend more money on it. The blood and effects generally look more realistic. There's uh, more usage of shots and pro props and camera work. The set design is far more complex. And in fact, a mini Hollywood, as they call it, the town they built for this, is actually still out there to this day. And I believe they use it for the next one as well. Don't quote me on that one. And they use a lot more NPCs, uh, by which I mean extras, who usually have one, maybe two lines in the background, as a way to flesh out most of the scenes. Now I'm just going to jump into the film proper, because most of the things I would have to say about the, the composition and the style of it I've already said, this still feels like a theater play that has been filmed with a modern camera. He still uses the one-third rule. He still uses a lot of tricks when it comes to things. Probably my favorite trick is actually the very first shot. So if you haven't seen this film, the film opens, and there's this gentleman riding a horse across the desert, and then the gentleman gets shot, and he falls to the ground. The horse rides over here, and then it rides over here. And during this shot, the credits are playing, because back in this day and age, the credits played at the beginning of the film, not the end. Now, <clears throat> the man's still laying there. And if you pay attention, and it's most noticeable on the bushes in the lower right, this is still a shot. They are still filming. That means he sat there and filmed a guy, you know, falling off his horse, you know, stuntman or whatever, and laying on the desert for like five minutes. <laughs> as, as they just throw, this is going to be the intro credits shot. This is what we're going to do. And it's a well-composed shot, too. It, it, it's just it, it, that kind of stuff, you know? Anyway, anyways. So, notice how, once again, the three, tit uh, three titulars, the main three characters are all introduced in the same general way as is in the first film. A lot of establishment. First thing we find out about Mortimer is his competency and his style. So he, you know, <laughs> calls the emergency stop. Quick side note. I, I've actually, I mean, okay. How many of you think that if trains or other you know, public transits had like an emergency stop now, that that would be a bad thing? Yes, I know some do. I know that's still a thing. But I mean, just anybody could pull the thing for any reason, and the whole thing will just stop. <laughs> like, could you picture just how abusable that is? How many trolls or kids or idiots would pull that? Like, wait, wait, you know. Anyways. <clears throat> I love that, though. The, the, the rail company would have been willing to give you... We'd be willing to work with you to help you get off here. Anyways. <clears throat> so he's polite, very firm. He goes ahead, takes the, takes the thing, says, Alright, I'm going to go after this guy. Slides it under the wall, door. Apologizes to the man. Shoots the guy. <laughs> now... It could be debated as to whether or not he deliberately waited until the man was pretty much on the far end of the field in order to shoot him. That sounds likely, given his style. 
because his style is long-ranged. This is actually one of the establishing points of him. He's got a special pistol and rifle, but the pistol is the important part that just has more range than a typical pistol would. Now, I don't exactly know if that's how that would work in real life. I am not a gun expert, but that is what we are shown in the film. So he deliberately takes this, goes after this guy, and the guy is shooting after him, and he just, his bullets can't reach. He can't make the shots. So he takes him down. Turns into bounty, gets his money, and of course he's entirely on top of things the whole time. In many ways, he feels more like Joe did back in the first film than Monko does in this film. Speaking of which, then we're introduced to Monko. He's got a little bit of style too, but his style is different. So first of all, he tends to use his left arm for basically everything. In fact, if you pay attention to almost the entire first thing, he, he keeps his right arm completely out of it, like the entire time. And it's actually kind of awkward in some scenes how he's trying to do things one-armed, because you know, Clint Eastwood has two arms. But that actually makes a degree of sense, since that is his style, it's so that his right arm is always available for drawing his pistol, if need be. And then, of course, the guns, he, he's still the quick draw. He takes down the three guys while they have the jump on him, and then goes ahead and uh, is generally morally competent. I'm saying that wrong. He seems like someone who is still leaning more towards the good guy than not. Obviously, he's not a good person. He's not a hero. He's not John Wayne. But he's still probably the more morally tinted of the trio, which naturally brings me to Indio. El Indio, well, first thing he does is he shoots his fellow prisoner. Now, at the time, there's no establishment for this. There's no reason for it. He just shoots his fellow prisoner. Later on, we now can deduce that because this man was the carpenter, he does this in order to make sure no one else can do this. No one else can go after the, the bank that he wants to go after. So, ha-ha! <laughs> shoots his fellow carpenter, shoots a whole bunch of guards, leaves one alive just to make sure they know. Then, on the off chance that you missed the fact that this guy's the bad guy, he has a woman and her child murdered. Now, this is pretty dark. In fact, I would say this film is might actually be the most uh, unpleasant of the trio by memory. Yes, I know some pretty bad stuff happens in the third film, but, I mean, come on. And then he allows the man whose wife and child he just had brutally murdered uh, to, to duel him, and he shoots him, and that's the end of that. And then he goes, gets high on something. In fact, he's like, no, no, just need it, need it. And then he takes it, and he's so much more calm. Uh, people have theorized that it's supposed to be marijuana or something similar, but based on how it's presented. But either way, this is a man who is presented as violent, unhinged, and completely morally reprehensible. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Uh, by the way, quick quick note here. Lorenzo Robledo, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, is the gentleman who played the man whose wife and child were just killed. I just wanted to give him special praise. He doesn't have a lot of lines, but he does a really good job of acting in, the, in these scenes. Anyways, so, I'm looking at my notes. Like I said, I don't have many notes about the sequence of events. It's mostly, so we have the Act 1, which is unlike the usual establishment stuff. Act 1 is mostly starting with us already assuming that we know what we're dealing with. So the two bounty killers are circling around the gang, and then they kind of start to work together. And then Act 2 is them getting caught and beaten up and dealing with it, and Act 3 is the big final showdown. Pretty pretty simple uh, act structure, similar to the first one, 
just with a few uh, narrative differences. The problem is there's not a lot to say about the specifics of the events that happen. Everything just kind of happens in a way that you kind of expect it to. I do like the way it shows how both Mortifer and Monko have their own different approaches to trying to figure things out. Mortimer and Monko, of course, are both scouting, but Monko is more focused on Mortimer, whereas Mortimer is more focused on the gang. Now, given what we find out at the end, this makes perfect sense. For Monko, this is a job, after all, and he doesn't want to share a job with another bounty killer. Similarly, <clears throat> Monko goes to visit people, Mortimer goes to visit a press in order to figure out what's going on. And you kind of get the feel from their overall approach their style, their manner of dress, their mannerisms, that Monko is more of the young, cocky, you know, I'm, I've just got to make this work and I'm just going to muscle my way through it. Whereas Mortimer is the more refined, dignified, gentleman sort of thing. As a quick aside, it was an absolute treat to see Lee Van Cleef here. I don't remember the exact film I saw Lee Van Cleef in first, but I've liked him in a lot of things. In fact, Funny little note, his career was basically winding down when he was asked to come and do this film. He wasn't even aware of the fact that he was playing one of the starring roles. And when he when he found out, he was like, okay, sure, I, I guess I can do that. And it was so popular here in the States, it completely relaunched his career here in the States. And with good reason. The man's a good actor. The man does a really good job with his part. He does a lot of what I like to call facial acting, where you know, a lot of the emotion of the scene is all presented on the way he expresses himself with his face. Now, <clears throat> God, I'm talking too long. I'm sorry. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm having trouble with sleep and everything, and I'm just, let's just move forward. I do apologize, because this is a good film. It deserves to be talked about well. You know what I want to talk about well? I like the fact that Manco is the one who doesn't really have a plan, whereas Mortimer is the one who does. And before I move into that, I want to talk about the man with no name, you know, Joe, Manco, and Blondie, respectively. There has been some debate about, and I mentioned this briefly in the last uh, rumination, whether or not these films are literally connected, or if they are merely figuratively connected. Now, I, the more I watch these, the more I think that they were originally intended to be figuratively connected, and yet as they went through it, they became more literally connected. But if I were to trace a line for these films, I would say that uh, Fistful of Dollars happens last. And then a few dollars more happens before it. And then, of course, and it's just kind of obvious, uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly happens even before those three. So it's kind of the reverse narrative order, right? And a lot of this is based on not just the, the approach, but the mannerisms of the man with no name himself. Like I said, in this film, he comes across as far more raw. Oh, he's still a good shot, but that's actually all he's got going for him. Remember, in the first film, one of the things he was most keenly known for was outsmarting his opponents and outmaneuvering them even when he was outgunned or outmuscled. In this film, he actually loses consistency consistently and only wins because of the intervention of outsiders. It is Mortimer who is the one who teaches him how to outthink his way through the situation. Probably the best example of that, and getting back to what I was just about to talk about, is when Mortimer shoots him in the neck and he's now got a serious neck wound so that he can go back and prove that he, you know, I mean, look, I, I got injured, but they came back in dead. This is what happened. And of course, I mean, why would Indio care? He wants less people. Anyways, I'll get to that point in a minute. <clears throat> so, Monko probably would have gone back un unscathed and wouldn't have had a plan in mind and probably would have gotten shot or had to have a shootout. Instead, it's Mortimer who teaches him the value of trying to outmaneuver your enemy. 
This also kind of comes up in the finale, but I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. There's also a really nice bit. It's the scene... I'm sorry, I actually skipped ahead a little bit. Please forgive me. That's the next part. I just, I, I just want to briefly reiterate how awesome the scene is when the two bounty killers confront each other. Because the one's like, all right, take his bag to the thing, he's getting out of town. And one of them is like, what the heck? What are you doing? And the other one's like, no, take it back upside, take it back. Take it back. Ah, screw it, I'm not dealing with this. So, neither of these people are obviously trying to kill the other. But I find it amusing that what Mortimer does is more or less deliberately allows himself to be, for lack of a better way to put it, trolled to, to, until he is out of range. Once again, showing that particular tendency, that, that approach to his tactics. Once he's out of range, well, now he pulls out his gun. Now you'll notice Monko, in reaction, just starts to panic just slightly. Like he's like, oh god. Because he was just playing with him up until then. And now he's like, oh god, okay, reload, reload, reload. And he takes a real shot, which misses, because he's out of range. Mortimer then shoots his hat back. Because, after all, Mortimer isn't evil either. He's just you know, trying to show off his particular style. And he does want to pair up with this kid. So, you can kind of see where I, I, I get the, the sort of thematic approach idea that Mortimer is kind of the Obi-Wan, if you will. Yeah, I know, that's in the wrong order. To, to Monko, that would eventually become the Monko that is Joe over in the first film. I have a note here that says, Act 2, more torture, ha ha ha. What is with this? These, this is, what is with these films and torturing people? I know there's a torture scene in the third film, too. And it's pretty horrible. In fact, I have a story to share about that. And I can't wait to get there. This is not my sarcastic voice at all. What are you talking about? But what I do love is this film is... These films, in general, are generally heralded as some of the best films of all time. What I find funny about that is every time I hear someone talk about how violent modern films are and how they have to go back to the old films... I think of this film. I kept count this time around. 46. That's how many people die in this film. 46 people die in this film. <sighs> right. Anyways. So then we see... I haven't really talked about the locket. One of the things I like is the build-up. So the locket, the actual theme that plays, serves as a recurring motif. And at first we might be presumed to think that it has something to do with Indio's backstory to try and flesh him out more as a villain. And while that is true, we also hear it a few times relevant to Mortimer. So very early on, if you're paying any kind of attention at all, musically speaking, the two characters are connected and we start to get an interest in why it is Mortimer's going after Indio. We don't have specifics. We don't, in fact, we only have one line right at the end, which is almost a throwaway line that he was her sister. But it is a nice recurring motif, especially since every time Indio sees it or interacts with it, he freaks out a bit. Now that's important, because it's the one bit of characterization Indio has, and it helps to differentiate him from Ramon back in the first film. If you remember, I mentioned how Ramon was basically amoral, that nothing he did in any way did he feel like it was wrong. But in this film, for some reason, Indio is mortified by what happened. He is clearly haunted by it. Uh, this is obviously in documents and in the script, but and in the novelization for that matter, but even just watching the film, you can tell this is something that has haunted him ever since, that he has literally turned to the equivalent of drugs in order to try and cope with. 
why? And that, was, that question really stuck with me in a weird way. And I suppose the simplest answer is because he is not amoral. It is because he is immoral. And this is the distinction between the two, because someone who is immoral knows what they're doing is wrong, and then just does it anyways. Now, their specific reaction to that can vary based on the individual and the severity and blah, blah, blah. But you get the idea that this is someone who is just messed up by what happened, but specifically because of the suicide, not anything else. I suppose that could certainly be a very unpleasant thing to go through. That's the other really horrible dark aspect of this film, by the way. But it almost weirds me out that he's totally cool with murdering a man, and then seconds, if not minutes later, then going to force himself upon the man's wife, or, or beloved, or whatever. And it's her killing herself that messes him up? Why? I'm sorry for saying that, and I know that sounds so strange, but if you're so cool with the former, why does the why does the latter bother you? And I have to admit, this has just stuck out with me. I would love to hear any, any theories you guys have or any thoughts on this one, because it's just bizarre. I do, of course, have a theory, because it's me. I think that this pricked him in a way that he... How do I phrase this? It was like someone holding up a mirror to how horrible he is. And he really was totally cool with murdering a man and then immediately taking his wife. That that was just something that was cool. Yeah, sure, whatever, it's a Tuesday, fine. But the fact that she would rather commit suicide, and I just got deflagged by YouTube. <laughs> I'm serious, that's a YouTube flag. Could you believe that? Not that I care. Anyways, mm. she would rather commit suicide, we'll say it a second time, rather than be in any manner with him kind of showcased just how abominable and atrocious the idea of what he was doing to her was, which then made him have to face how horrible of a thing he was doing because of how horrible a person he was. Now, at the same time, he obviously didn't learn any lessons from this. He didn't get any better from this. Remember, chronologically speaking, it is well after this point in time when he goes and murders a wife. Well, he doesn't, but he orders his men to murder a wife and child. And then he murders the man who did it. But, why? It, 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 I don't know. This whole thing just kind of sticks out in my craw a little bit, how much this bothers him. They do a good characterization of it. It just doesn't make sense to me. I suppose if the mind of someone like Indio made sense to me, maybe I would have a problem, right? So Indio's final plan, to come back to him for a second there, is, well, let's call it the Joker plan. Less shares means more money for individual, right? And that way we'll keep all of the money. <laughs> Sorry, the boss told me something similar. Wait, no! <laughs> what I find amusing is he tells this plan to multiple people. He offers this same deal multiple times. And you got to get the idea of this man just really not giving a damn about anyone other than himself. But at the same time, and I know this sounds strange, it almost feels like he has no long-term plan at all. That he's just completely making it up on the fly. And that's why I parallel him to the Joker. Because I get the very strong impression that he really just does not care at all. That he is the kind of person who is thinking about now, maybe tomorrow, and that's about it. Nothing past that, in either direction. Just going to binge on whatever he wants, purely impulsively, and of course, the drugs, in order to make sure that the past doesn't catch up to him. And he's just going to keep doing I don't think he even had a plan for all that money, assuming he did get, manage to take all of it for himself. 
you know, maybe go off and spend it on the next town, and then, I, I don't know. Like, there's no hint of any long-term goal here. Which, of course, leads us to the final showdown, basically. Mortimer and, excuse me, Mortimer and Monko. I keep forgetting how to say it. They only say his name like three times in the whole film. He's once again the man without a name, because that's how they branded it here in the States when they finally released it three years later. Or was it two years for this one? I forget, but anyways. The man without a name and Mortimer are both released because it's part of his big plan to have his own people kill them and vice versa. And in so doing, less shares, more money, blah, 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 blah. The final showdown was decent enough. Some good, you know, some good twists. I particularly am fond of the barber shop thing where he's got his his poncho up on the dummy or whatever. And they all shoot, ah, and then he flips her up. You know, just a little clever stuff like that. Nothing really to comment on. But then we get to the actual final showdown between Mortimer and Indio. Indio, of course, actually does manage to outthink Mortimer. It's the only time that anyone outthinks Mortimer. And it makes sense, since at this point, with the moment so close, it makes sense that Mortimer's emotions would be overriding his, his thinking. And this, of course, leads to Monko getting involved and evening the score. And, and I wanted to comment on something here. First, I want to give huge praise to Lee Van Cleef's acting. He gets across the idea of someone who is just has a piercing, gnawing pain. Just looking at India, listening to that song is too much for him to bear. And you can just see it on his face. It, it's brilliant acting, and I love it. I love his portrayal. The second thing I wanted to point out, and this is a recurring motif in the first two films. I don't remember if this is in the third film or not, but it's a recurring concept that the people, and I, and I say that so generically because it's not the good guys or the bad guys, it's just the people in these films go out of their way to allow the other side a chance to react or fight back before killing them. You notice that? I, I, I mean, I could make a huge list if I sat down and thought about all the times in which someone was like, well, I'm going to, you know, I, someone has decided to kill someone else, but they give them a chance to talk it through, and maybe they'll get up, or maybe they okay, yeah, okay, and then... Now, I know that's part of the Western thing. You're supposed to have the duel, which, for the record, makes absolutely no sense to me, but let's just move on from that. But even the villains do this. You know, he, he, like I mentioned earlier, Indio, after having the wife and child murdered, I'm not going to stop banging on about that point, because it's horrible. After doing that, he says, all right, here's a gun. I'll give you a chance to shoot me. In the front this time, not the back. And he, and he does this. Manko says, it's a shame i got to kill you, to the three bandit members, and then gives them a nice long period of time until they're all on their feet and ready to go. And then he shoots them. But, of course, at the end, Manko allows Mortimer the chance to duel. But if you're paying attention, the way it's shaped is... Uh, not Manko, sorry, not Manko. Indio. Indio gives Mortimer a chance to duel. And Indio's basically got his gun right here, and Mortimer's is on the ground. So that's not actually a fair duel. Now, I point that out because that's the one and only thing that makes this make any kind of sense. The idea that if you're going to kill someone like that, there has to, in, in a duel circumstance, it has to actually be a duel. There are a, there's a degree of code involved. In short, what was about to happen was not a fair duel. Now, if this is then makes sense because what Manko then does 
as he comes out with his gun on him, offers him a pistol and a belt, so he's got his pistol right here now, then says, okay, now you can duel. And then he just kind of pieces out. In short, it wasn't that he wanted to save Mortimer, he just wanted the duel to be fair. And with the duel fair, Mortimer does outshoot Indio, and Indio dies. Yay. Just interesting, the way that's presented. And then, of course, Groggy is the last one to die. Poor Groggy. One of the only guys who had a brain of the whole gang. I don't have much else to say, unfortunately. I do apologize. I did enjoy this film very, very much. Now, the next film is considered one of the best films ever made. And I'm some average dude whose studio is made out of his apartment. So, yeah, I'm a little nervous. It's okay. I get derogatory comments all the time. Uh, you, should, you should see my Godfather videos sometime. But all I want to say here and now is that I'm going to do my damnedest to do a decent analysis of the film on its own merits. And with a couple commentary of the, the Princess Bride effect that will be on display. So I hope you join me next week or the week after that, whenever this goes live. For the good, the bad, the ugly. Otherwise, I'll see you later, guys.